0: Listener-supported, WNYC Studios.
1: From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Tuesday, October 17th. Now, our monthly Call Your Senator segment with New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Of course, we'll be talking about U.S. policy toward the Middle East, but also touch on a few other things. Senator, always good of you to do this. Welcome back to WNYC.
2: Thank you so much.
1: So President Biden has announced that he is going to Israel tomorrow. Do you support him going? And what would you describe as the purpose?
2: I do support him going. Um, he is going to reaffirm the United States' solidarity with Israel and our ironclad commitment to its security. Um, he will also um, make sure that there is a crystal clear message that this war should not escalate and that Lebanon, Hezbollah, and other actors should not engage. He's going to focus laser-like on the hostage release and how we can move forward on getting hostages released by Hamas. Uh, I think he also will talk to Netanyahu about how best to minimize civilian casualties and how to enable humanitarian assistance to flow into Gaza for civilians that does not benefit Hamas. And I think he will work on how uh, we can limit um, the loss of life.
1: How would you say Netanyahu is doing at that so far?
2: Well, I don't think they've begun to implement their plan of attack against Hamas. I think uh, right now they are focused on a strategy to protect Israel from more rocket attacks. Um, The first aid that the United States has been sending is two more iron dome batteries, more uh, missile interceptors, which are the the missiles and munitions that Iron Dome needs. Rockets are still coming across. Um, There's still incursions in the north from Hezbollah. Um, He's desperately just trying to protect Israelis from death and destruction from this terrorist attack. And the fact that President Biden is going there, in my opinion, creates more time to share uh, lessons learned from what it was like to fight isis what it was like to fight al-qaeda in both iraq and afghanistan um, and how hard it is to effectively root out terrorism in cities and how difficult it is to protect uh, innocent life um, during that that effort Um, but it is essential that israel do whatever it can to stop these attacks and stop these rockets it has a duty to protect its citizens And I think for Israelis, they see this as very much their 9-11. So we have a chance to give them the guidance and um, just knowledge of how hard it is to defeat terrorism. But Israel has to, because right now, Israeli citizens are still under grave attack, and there are countless hostages being held whose lives are still deeply at risk.
1: Are you suggesting, though, or you're trying not to suggest, that Israel is doing, after their 9-11, as you and many others have described it, what the U.S. did after hours, which is to say a military overreaction that's going to hurt it in the long run as arguably the war in Iraq at very least, and maybe Afghanistan too, has hurt the U.S.
2: I think it's important for our military to inform their military about what works, what doesn't work, and what, what was effective in rooting out terrorism and what wasn't effective. And I think this is a very intensely emotional time for Israeli citizens. I think it is deeply um, troubling for the defense forces because they didn't see this attack coming and so many innocent lives were destroyed. The fact that Hamas was able to infiltrate Israel and come in and uh, slaughter babies and children and disabled individuals and seniors and destroy and slaughter an entire group of people who were just... Enjoying a concert uh, just a few miles from Gaza is really what they're undergoing right now. And so thoughtfulness at this p- time is really important. And I think the way America can be the strongest ally to Israel is to inform them about the challenges of defeating terrorism when it is an absolute essential thing to do to protect their citizens.
1: Joade, a cab driver in Manhattan, who I think is going to be on this, too. Jawade, can you hear me? You're on WNYC.
2: Yes, I I can, Brian. My question to
1: uh, the senator is, as a Muslim American, first of all, I voted for her, and why do we have a a different standard with the Palestinians compared to the Ukrainians what they are fighting for the same coast? Why are the uh, Palestinians treated differently compared to the Ukrainians?
2: Well, right now, um, Israel did not invade Gaza. Gaza militants invaded Israel and are attacking Israel. So there's just a or Hamas militants are attacking Israel. So you've got it flipped. Um, but I do understand your concern. Your concern is how do we make sure that innocent lives aren't lost. How do we make sure there's humanitarian relief, water, medicine, and aid reaching innocent people? And that is a goal that the United States shares. It's a goal that President Biden shares. And it's one that Israel has um, made an agreement with our uh, Secretary of State that it will allow uh, aid to come in through the southern Gaza border and figure out how to get that aid to humanitarian relief efforts and not fund Hamas. Um, So we will protect innocent life as best we can, and we will try to stop this terrorist attack as quickly as we can.
1: Mr. Wade, thank you. And further to that, um, I want to play a clip of of Riel Benoit, executive director of the U.S. chapter of Doctors Without Borders. You talked about President Biden's trip being in part Um, to encourage certain kinds of restraint on the part of Netanyahu regarding what they're going to do. This is about what they're already doing. And this is from Andrea Mitchell Reports on MSNBC yesterday. It's one minute long, describing some of the effects of the cutoff of supplies, food, water, electricity, to the civilian population.
0: There's one hospital where we had harrowing stories. They have run out of painkillers. The patients are screaming in pain. There is nothing to alleviate their suffering. And so to bring in the humanitarian supplies, obviously water is a huge issue as well. Our colleagues are reporting that the water people are drinking is salty, it's brackish, it needs to be treated. And you need fuel to be able to run the water treatment plant. You need fuel to be able to run the generators, to power the incubators where we've got neonatal uh, cases, uh, infants, newborns who are at risk of dying if not from a lack of electricity, then from a lack of water. We're, we're just in a, in a terrible situation where many people are going to die, not from the direct consequences of the war and of the bombardment, but from all the other issues um, that are surrounding them and making life untenable.
1: Avril Benoit, executive director of U.S. Doctors Without Borders on MSNBC yesterday. Senator, is that what U.S. policy should stand 100 percent behind?
2: So this is the hell that has been wrought by Hamas. Um, Hamas is using hospitals, are using individuals, are using civilian locations uh, to create human shields for their terrorist attacks and for their... um, constant launching of rocket attacks into israel so this is what terrorism does to a country it destroys it hamas does not care at all about the loss of life of the people in that hospital they don't care about the loss of life of anyone in um in gaza and they don't care about palestinian life that is a fact and so we are working now with israelis to get humanitarian supplies to those hospitals and to gaza specifically medicines and water Uh, food and any other humanitarian relief that's needed. Uh, We are on the ground to help. There are trucks literally lined up at the southern border of Gaza trying to get in, and the United States is pushing Egypt to let them in. But who else is also blocking this is Hamas. They are not allowing that southern gate to open. They do not want Palestinians to leave. They want to see more suffering because if they see more suffering, they can blame Um, Israel. And that is what terrorism is about. And that is the problem where terrorism in any country is allowed to fester and is allowed to take power and destroy opportunity for the citizens of the country that they are um, occupying. But that is what Hamas has done to the Palestinian people and in Gaza specifically.
1: Even given the truth of everything you just said about Hamas, does that justify nonetheless the cutoff of all power, water and food to hospitals and everything else in Gaza?
2: So Israel has already um, said that water will flow, and we are going to make sure that that happens. That's why we want to help with the humanitarian relief. Um, The challenge with fuel is that Hamas is using the fuel and stealing the fuel. Hamas, we have evidence that Hamas has been stealing fuel from hospitals, stealing fuel from humanitarian relief, stealing fuel from not-for-profits that are trying to protect people and and that is the challenge when you have a country that is infiltrated by a terrorist organization and is literally being controlled by a terrorist organization, they will take whatever resources are available to meet their terrorist ends. And unfortunately, they will take it from hospitals. So we're going to do whatever we can to help and to get food and resources in and, and medicine in. But we do want people to evacuate and to, to make it possible for at some point uh, Israeli troops to go in to try to defeat Hamas. And so that is why they have asked citizens to go south, to get to safer areas, that they can be protected. But it's very hard. How do you evacuate a hospital? It's very difficult. And so when Hamas uses that hospital as a human shield and puts hostages in all buildings and in tunnels so that they can be used as human shields, the horror and the terror that is taking place in Gaza is happening because of Hamas's decisions and how they are controlling that country.
1: How do you evacuate a hospital with very sick people, even if Hamas is not using it that way, which Israel has ordered.
2: So the best that a hospital can do is use whatever ambulances they have to move south, evacuate as many people as possible, and hope that Hamas isn't using it as a place to launch rockets, because that's what they have been doing.
1: Joy in Manhattan. You're on WNYC with Senator Gillibrand. Hello, Joy.
2: Good morning. Um, I just wanted to kind of say, I feel like if if we're saying this is all Hamas's fault, and obviously what they did is atrocious, but if it's all their fault, seems to me our history is about two weeks old, and doesn't go back to 1947 at least. And um, if Biden wants to go visit Israel, I'd suggest he visit Gaza as well. And I'll take any responses off the air.
1: Thank you, Senator.
2: I think our history is really important. Um, We suffered through World War II and six million Jews were exterminated by the Nazis. And the world decided that Israel needed a country, and that's what the world decided. If you disagree with that decision, that's the disagreement with U.S. history and world history and what atrocities were committed during World War II. So you you can go back to history as far as you want, and there's so many different conflicts that you would go and look at and point fingers at who was wrong and, and where. But the truth is, Hamas has no legal basis to behead children and babies and kill people at a concert and invade a country and send rockets, thousands of rockets. They have thousands more to launch. They have no basis to do that if gaza wanted a stronger government and wanted a path to peace that is what they have to fight for in their own political environment and they've been unable to do that because hamas has refused to allow elections since they were elected in the government over a dozen years ago And so that is the reality of what it's like to live in Gaza today. You don't have a government that represents you, that cares about people, that puts food and fuel and health care and education first, and not even allow for a democratically elected uh, legislature. So that is the challenge in these places that don't have rule of law and that don't have democracies. But it does not give a justification to slaughter innocent people in your neighboring country.
1: Has the U.S. – taken its foot off the gas too much in pushing Israel toward a two-state solution, which Netanyahu is not in favor of. Um, Mainstream news articles earlier this year actually warned about an increasing uh, risk of violent attacks by Palestinians. It's you know, kind of spooky now that this happened for me to go back and read some things that were in the Washington Post and elsewhere um, where people were warning about with no prospect for a two-state solution anymore in the Netanyahu government, ongoing settlements in the West Bank and the weakening of the Supreme Court, which sometimes upholds Palestinian rights and not much pressure from the United States uh, with respect to those things. Has U.S. policy taken its foot off the gas too much with respect to trying to be a meaningful broker toward a two-state solution?
2: So um, there's a couple of things there. Um, First of all, the Israeli people themselves have been fighting against the policies of this administration in Israel with regard to the judiciary, they have been protesting and they have been using their democratic values and voices to show who they are and what they believe. And that has been inspiring. So the Israelis themselves have not wanted many of these judicial reforms. But more importantly, we have been working on this path to peace because America does believe in a two state solution. We believe in peace in the Middle East. And the path to peace we've been working on has been through the Abraham Accords. And unfortunately, Brian, my greatest fear is that this attack and the viciousness of this attack and the brutality of this attack was planned specifically to derail those negotiations. And what this would look like is it would have been a collaboration between Israel and the Arab world and the United States to create a long-term security agreement between these countries against Iran and Iranian proxies and terrorism. Um, in favor of economic investment and growth. And what the United States was asking from the Arab countries was to invest in the Palestinians. What they were asking for each of these countries was to invest in their education, their food security, their water security, their energy security, to rebuild a country, to have a Palestinian state that actually had democratic values and could have security and peace. That's the whole vision of what this Abraham Accords could look like. And that was going to be our ask of the Arab world, because what we were giving to the Arab world and to Israel was the means by which to have a regional defense agreement and much more economic investment and ties between these many nations. That is a challenge now because of what has happened. But I think that was the terrorist's intent to derail a past, Path for peace that I believe strongly in and that I was most hopeful for recently than I've ever been in the Middle East. It was the first time that every country in the region had a plan for how to create stability, a two-state solution, and peace.
1: Well, but was that aiming toward a two-state solution or only um, stability and peace, as you describe it, within the context of the occupation? Because many things that I've seen in the last week— um, say that under Trump, but also under Biden, this Abraham Accords approach encouraging normalization of relations by Arab states with Israel was coming without a real solution to the Palestinian statehood question. And when Saudi Arabia was on the verge of doing it recently, such a big, important country, um, many analysts are saying that was actually one of the triggers for this attack, not to say Hamas isn't a rejectionist organization that doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state anyway, but that any leverage the Palestinians had in the international order for their aspirations was being drained away by that U.S. campaign, by Biden, uh, as well as Trump. How would you respond to that?
2: I would say it's absolutely not true and Gaza has not been occupied for the most recent recent past and in fact what Saudi Arabia was asking about is how do we plan for a two-state solution and when I went and visited each of these countries that have already signed on to the Abraham Accords Bahrain UAE Morocco and Israel I asked each of the leaders of those countries would you in exchange for this agreement invest in the Palestinians and take one thing that you will do and guarantee over the next decade to build, whether it was water infrastructure or food and agriculture or electric infrastructure or education systems And every country said, yes, they would. And then when I met with the Palestinians and I met with their prime minister, I asked specifically, would you accept billions of dollars of aid and work by these Arab neighbors and by these Arab partners to rebuild Palestinian communities, he said yes. And so this was the deal that we were talking about and hoping for, and it was a path to peace, and it would strengthen the Palestinians, it would call for elections, it would call for the rebuilding of the Palestinian territories, it would give them the security and the stability that they need, and to be free from terrorist groups like Hamas and other terrorist groups uh, that have embodied and and lived in both Gaza and the West Bank. So I believe these attacks are intended to derail that, and that was the greatest hope for a Palestinian state, the greatest hope I've seen in the 15 years I've been involved in public policy um, in the Senate and in the House.
1: Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, our monthly Call Your Senator segment. We always appreciate that you come on and answer questions. Thank you, Senator.